0: Is there anyone out there who still isn't clear about what running does? Okay, last time. This is your brain. This is running. This is your brain on running. Any questions?
1: Uh, uh actually, I have so many questions.
0: I also have many questions.
1: Science has answers, though!
0: I'm Nigel Fish.
1: And I'm Katie Marshall. And this is the SciRunner Podcast, your science-based look at all things running.
0: First, it starts with a 5K. Next thing you know, your child has moved on to a 10K. Then a half marathon. Then even a full marathon. Spending hours every week feeding their disgusting habit. And by disgusting, I mean nipple chafing, and foot blisters.
1: If you don't talk to your children about running, who will?
0: (laughs) So why do people run? In our last episode, we talked about the health benefits of running, which I'm pretty certain a lot of people probably run for that reason, maybe even exclusively, or maybe they at least got started for health reasons. Uh, But maybe also people run because they get high. Uh, Do you get high, Katie?
1: Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I definitely get high from running? I uh, yes. It can be a bit elusive. I mean, I think I get high anyways. Um I feel like it can be a bit elusive. It definitely doesn't happen every time I run. And there can definitely be other factors like, you know, running in good weather, I feel a bit more euphoric than running in the rain. And you know, I think I mentioned to you before and that there's this break point where if I don't cross seven or eight kilometers, I really, I really don't feel that euphoria. That said, it does seem pretty hard to define exactly what this high is. It might be subtle in its effects. It's not necessarily profoundly obvious. So what is this high exactly?
1: So, you know, scientists make a career out of trying to define things that you know, experiences that are sometimes hard to, to really define. Uh, there's, there's been lots and lots of studies on, on what runners report as the runner's high. Uh, it's generally thought of as a euphoric feeling while running. Uh, one set of runners in a paper from 1982 describe it variously as a sense of power, feeling of no pain and total concentration on the finish line, floating, and, and maybe an overall strong feeling without pain or any other symptoms.
0: I like the feeling charge one. I think that describes, or I would describe mine as that.
1: Yeah, there's there's definitely been a lot of arguing back and forth in the scientific literature about whether the runner's high actually exists because it's such a, a nebulous sort of concept. Uh, the scientific definition for a long time I could find in the in the literature was A euphoric sensation experienced during running, usually unexpected, in which the runner feels a heightened sense of well-being, enhanced appreciation of nature, and transcendence of the barriers of time and space. Kind of like Doctor Who, I guess. (laughs) That's
0: that's pretty, yeah. (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) But, you know, as one review uh, of this concept dryly noted, it is obvious that such a broad definition in conjunction with the extensive use of Esoteric language does not qualify as an operational definition that can be used to derive testable hypotheses. I'm not really certain how we would test the transcendence of barriers of time and space in the lab without a TARDIS. Wait, wait,
0: wait. What? No, what? Your lab doesn't have a transcendometer? What kind of operation do you run, Katie? Well,
1: you know, clearly it's a bit of a two-bit operation. We Our transcendometer is actually being sent to the shop right now. I, I, The shop guys take forever. I, Sorry. I love you shop guys. You guys are amazing. You make my life so much better. Anyway, uh, so we're going to go with a def- different definition as published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2004. The runner's high is centered mostly on observable behaviors such as analgesia, Sedation, which is post exercise calm, anxiolysis, and a sense of well being.
0: Right. So the an- analgesia is the is sort of pain killing. Sedation, sleepy or calm. i um, mm. sorry, but what's the anxiolysis? anxiolysis?
1: Anxiolysis is the reduction of anxiety. Ah, of course. And and actually, there's all kinds of hilarious things where they measure this in mice, like how much time they spend in the light versus dark. Um, but, you know, this is these are at least behaviors that are measurable in non-human animals. It's really hard to ask a mouse how it feels about the barriers of space and time, for instance. <laughs> are you transcending right now, mouse? <laughs> mouse kind of twitches its whiskers a little bit. Yeah. But, you know... Given that the runner's high is so elusive, there's there's been several papers that have, have at least suggested in commentaries that they think maybe it's a myth. Uh, one article suggested it was a placebo response. Another, that was an opinion piece published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, outright stated it was a myth.
0: Yeah. And so that's interesting because, I mean, I, I, you know, from what I've read from other runners and talked to other runners, not everybody gets this high So, I mean, maybe it is a myth. Uh, One runner on Reddit said, I am still wondering what the runner's high is all about. Mine is more like runners double over and puke on the side of the road.
1: Oh, that sounds terrible. I don't want that.
0: Uh, Yeah. And I also find it interesting uh, in some friends such that want to get into running, they maybe try a few times. Like maybe our friend over at uh, Caustic Soda <laughs> Oh, uh, poor says, Joe. <laughs> Joe says uh, he he didn't like running. Uh, but so they run, they try a few times, and then they kind of give up, and because you know they have they have to get through this sort of uncomfortable amount of work before you get to this point where running becomes a lot more fun. I mean, for me, like I said, I don't really get this high until like seven or eight kilometers. So if somebody told me I could only run four kilometers from here on out, I would probably quit running.
1: Right, and. And, you know, it's kind of funny, like even reading from like well-established runners. So this uh, this uh, one article written in this uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, the the author writes, although I'm not an exercise physiologist and have not conducted a scientific study of the subject, I can speak from extensive personal experience. Sixty miles of running during an average week. That's that. That's a lot of running. That's about 100 kilometers a week uh, and seven completed marathons. Anyone expecting a high or other mystical experience during a run is headed for disappointment. I don't attain them, nor do the other marathoners with whom I am acquainted. Running is tough, tedious, tiring, and often painful. The euphoria, if it happens at all, comes when the run is over, and you know you don't have to face up to it again for a while. One must wonder, then, why these 20 million individuals consider to pu- continue to punish themselves in this manner – are they masochists, obsessive compulsives, or are there perhaps logical explanations for this behavior?
0: Ah, uh, yes, it's much more reasonable explanation that we're all masochists. Uh you know, I feel like this guy misunderstood. Maybe what? what I before. don't know. Speak for yourself, Nigel. <laughs> I feel like this guy might have understood, misunderstood. Like, you know, he said like mystical experience. Like, I don't think anybody's saying. You know, you're, you're, you're.
1: How, I am how, one how with the of... trees, Nigel. while I run? I am one with the trees.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think anybody's, uh, you know, this is saying you're having this mind blowing hallucinogenic, you know, out of body experience or anything like that. It's a pretty mild high. I don't think, you know, so I think this guy might have missed the point. I think he's probably actually experiencing it. He just
1: doesn't know and and this is hard because it all comes down to the definition of what the high is like if we're defining it like this you know that that original definition that i said was was analgesia sedation um feeling a little less anxious like those are not necessarily like you're not gonna go oh my god i am suddenly without anxiety unless you've been experiencing a lot of anxiety right and
0: maybe this guy's pretty balanced as it is and yeah you know i mean for me i you know i have some some anxiety in life and stress in life as mo- a lot of people do and so yeah running definitely finds i find a relief from that so if he's just running and he doesn't have that then maybe he's not finding the relief you know
1: yeah it's hard to say um if we look at runners in general uh, there's been a few studies trying to quantify just how many runners feel a runner's high it's also possible that he's just not someone who experiences it uh, the, the estimates really vary, um, but it seems relatively common, but not a hundred percent. Uh, one study from the early eighties, uh, looked at 48 runners who signed up for a local marathon and offered to reimburse a marathon fee if they answered this, um, this survey. And the marathon fee was $11. $11.
0: So wait, are you sure this wasn't just they reimbursed their, like, photo or something <laughs> that they pay for.
1: It was the early Pretty 80s. Cheap. It was yeah. a golden time for runners, yeah. let me tell you.
0: That. Yeah, marathons are too expensive. That's another thing for a <laughs> <know>. talk, another <laughs> podcast. But anyway.
1: So anyway, if the runners decided to join the study, uh, they they actually included a 13-year-old in the group. I don't think most marathons now actually allow 13-year-olds in. Anyway, so the runners trained an average of 48 miles per week for this marathon. And after the race, they were ma- mailed a qu- questionnaire and asked about their experiences. Of the runners, 73% experienced what they called a high during training, and 66 experienced it during the race. So this is definitely common, it seems, but it's not 100% for sure. There's lots of people who never experience it. And uh, interestingly, the authors generally found that the more likely a person was to get high during the race, the higher the score they had on a test of hypnotic susceptibility.
0: Uh Hypnotic susceptibility, that sounds a bit dubious. What's that's actually a thing? I don't, yeah, <laughs> there's actually great.
1: a couple of scales of hypnotic sens- uh, susceptibility. And this is just a way of measuring how likely it is a person is to, to become hypnotized. And they had this whole kind of hypothesis that runners are actually in the group of people who um, can kind of self hypnotize or feel like they can disassociate a little bit from their body, um, not in kind of a transcending t- barriers of time and space way, but just. In terms of just sort of feeling calm and, and feeling good.
0: Okay. So we've established that, you know, some people definitely do feel high or at least, you know, they, they say they do. And I, I think a common word that a lot of people associate with runners high is endorphins. Got to get those fins.
1: Ooh, fins.
0: <laughs> uh, so so what really is physically going on here? Like, what, is, is, is this endorphin hypothesis a thing
1: or Sure. So uh, I think a lot of people know the word endorphin, but they don't necessarily know what it means. It actually comes from the word morphine, which is an opioid drug that I think some people at least are familiar with. And all an endorphin is, is a morphine or a, a molecule like morphine that your body produces itself. So endogenously produ- produced morphine. Uh, they're opioids that your body produces in response to pain to help reduce that pain. Uh, when they were first discovered in the mid-1970s, it made sense that they might be responsible for that feeling of being high and that reduction in pain. And And scientists and media really pushed this idea, even though there wasn't a lot of scientific evidence for it at the time.
0: Uh, the media pushed it. So I'm, I'm surprised that they didn't uh, try and uh, ban running in the 70s then.
1: Well, I know Nixon was kind of going after all kinds of drugs. But uh, yeah. for some reason, running was OK. Yeah, it's,
0: it's OK as long as you're producing your own morphine. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Inter- internally, I mean, not not <laughs> in a lab or in a garden, I mean, like as long as it's inside your body, literally,
1: right. And so, as time went on, um a few scientists uh, actually um, did some studies showing that blood plasma levels of uh, beta endorphin is the um the endorphin that that uh, is most commonly measured, and they found that they were increased following running, so problem solved, we're all just chasing that opioid high.
0: It's chasing that dragon I Yeah, we're
1: chasing, chasing the dragon it's like i'm not up with the the, the, lingo. the lingo uh I, although i have done a lot of morphine um
0: this would actually be this would be like the it's like the opposite of the blurch <laughs> yeah instead of being chased by the blurch you're running after the dragon
1: oh that makes sense that would actually
0: be a good idea for a marathon anyway <laughs>
1: <laughs> Just chase a dragon, Chasing literally, the dragon. like kind of like a dragon, like boating, but uh...
0: yeah. If listens to this, you should draw a comic about it. Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay.
1: So, so actually, I, I broke my leg several years ago, and uh, really, really badly. Like, I needed surgery, and um, and they actually had me on standby for emergency surgery in the hospital. And and while I was on standby, I I was lucky enough to get injections of morphine every four hours to to try and manage the pain because an unset broken leg lots of pain and and so like my family still tells the story of how they would be there talking to me and uh and i'd get my injection and and and, you know in the back of my my arm and and sort of 10-15 minutes later i'd be mid-sentence i'd be like yeah so you know i think like maybe in a week or two like it'd be really nice to see everyone over dinner or something and oh man hey feeling really good Morphine is great, and you know I have to say it's a lot more intense than a runner's high, but it, but definitely right, feelings correct. of of uh, of euphoria for sure. There's a major problem with this idea of endorphins being responsible for the runner's high, and and that's that morphine is actually a relatively small molecule that crosses the blood-brain barrier uh, really well. So this is the barrier between um, your bloodstream and, and your brain.
0: Yeah, what keeps out infections and such.
1: Yeah. Um, and and morphine crosses that readily. It's a small molecule. But endorphins are actually very large molecules, and they can't cross the blood-brain barrier. So if we measure uh, blood levels of endorphins, it doesn't necessarily tell us what's going on in the brain so, because those, those could be completely independent of what's going on in the blood, bloodstream.
0: Yeah. From what I read, I understand is there's endorphins that are produced inside the brain, and there are also endorphins produced outside the brain by a different, different gland or whatever some sort of <laughs> sure. some sort of thing and uh and and they don't cross back and forth because of the blood brain blood-brain barrier there.
1: Yeah, that's right. So if we're measuring the the blood levels, we have no idea what's necessarily going on in the brain. Right, they're not necessarily
0: correlated to each other. Right. We don't know, I guess. A, yeah.
1: yeah, it it's hard to know. Another problem is that beta endorphin okay. concentration is usually measured by antibodies that bind to the molecule. By antibodies, all I mean is that a molecule um, that's produced that binds directly to beta endorphin. And that's because we don't have magical machines that just like say, hey, uh, you know, you inject some complex biological fluid and it can tell you that the guy down in like building C over there killed the person, you know, over in that warehouse. Like none of this it, is that specific. What you're saying
0: is life is not CSI.
1: No, I'm afraid not. And so. I've the, been lied to. I, yeah. Oh, you have no idea. Um, and so there's like, we really don't, we, we don't have a specific way of measuring beta endorphin, um, that's independent of its sequence. So there's another molecule called adrenocorticotrophic hormone that has an uh, almost identical uh, sequence to beta endorphin. And this antibody may actually bind really well to, to, um, adrenocorticotrophic hormone and not just beta endorphin. So researchers don't know whether they're measuring beta endorphin or adrenocorticotrophic hormone. And since this uh, adrenocorticotrophic hormone is a stress hormone that that increases in concentration during exercise, there's a big potential issue with all these studies that said, hey, beta beta endorphin increases after exercise.
0: Right. So both are definitely happening, but who knows how much of each or maybe no endorphins at all or...
1: Right. And so the yeah. very first time that researchers were able to actually get around some of these problems and look directly in the brain was in 2008. And, and researchers actually used PET scans, which is positron emission tomography.
0: It's useful for real brains, not positronic brains.
1: No. Uh, what's a positronic? What are
0: you, you don't know what a positronic brain is? Okay. No. Oh, my. Your, your geek cred has been revoked.
1: Damn it. <laughs> All right. Well, positronic
0: I, brain is the, is the artificial android brain.
1: Really?
0: Okay. Oh, from Star Trek.
1: Oh. Positron- Data
0: has a positronic brain. Oh. Okay. That, that <laughs> suddenly, so much has made clear to me. Ergo, your geek card has been revoked. Oh.
1: Well, Sorry. If, I, if I talk more about receptors, does that does that give it back a little oh, bit? Oh,
0: you got the nerd creds. still. Oh,
1: okay. oh, nerd versus geek. I see. Right.
0: Right. Anyways.
1: So they use PET scans uh, to look at changes in opioid receptor availability after running. So they took 10 trained male runners that freely admitted to having had experience in runners high.
0: Freely admitted. I know. It's not a were they worried that they
1: Can you self-incriminate?
0: Can you, yes, it's self-incriminate. Runners, you're under arrest for runners high. <laughs> Sir, have you did you did you run before driving? Oh god. <laughs> are you are you driving under the influence of running? Anyway,
1: If you don't talk to your kids about running, who
0: will? Yeah. Little uh, run driving checkpoints.
1: Oh, God. Yeah. So uh, they took the runners and they gave them an opioid labeled with radioactive fluorine and then measured the concentrations of that compound both before and after running. So the idea was if they're producing endorphins in the brain that – the endorphins would actually block the opioid receptors in the brain, so that the radioactive label that that the PET scan can actually like see, uh, would not be able to bind as well to those receptors. And so, in that case, they would expect that they would see less binding of the radioactive um, artificial compound they gave after running. Does that make sense?
0: It's it's a little bit confusing, but it's a little uh, backwards. Uh, yeah, for it's sure. a little backwards. So they're basically just looking for the sort of like indirect measure of how much it's an indirect way of measuring the endorphins
1: for sure and and the hard part is that yes they did find that that after running they they saw less binding of this this radioactive version um but there could be other compounds blocking those exact same uh receptors biology is never perfectly like 100 it either binds or doesn't bind like you you have greater and lesser lesser binding affinity
0: right. so basically we don't know what's going on
1: yeah, I mean, it's the best study we've got for what's going on in the brain and not just relying on, on blood plasma levels. Sure. Um, but I was still kind of disappointed in this article. There's so many, like, so much media coverage that said this was the first study that directly measured endorphin levels in the brain, which, which is not actually the case.
0: Oh, what? The media wrong about science? Never.
1: never, never. And, you know, the, the other way to kind of study this, which I thought was really interesting, is they actually gave naloxone. Uh, to runners after a run, this is the stuff people use for opioid overdose. It it's really, really has high affinity for opioid receptors. So if you give naloxone to someone who's having an opioid uh, overdose, the um, n- naloxone will actually bind up all the opioid receptors and stop the the opioid overdose. And so the idea was, if you if endorphins are what are causing the runner's high, then blocking those opioid receptors should reduce the feeling of being high.
0: Right, but you said that they gave this to them after they ran right yes i find that kind of weird though because i usually experience my runners hot like i feel like it's during my run Yeah. I and mean, afterwards i feel you know maybe a little bit wet
1: so so this is hard because uh they administer a battery of tests to, to test whether the runners are high or not and so the tests include things like like looking at their pain perception or or like doing like a psychological evaluation and none of those things are really Fast, if that makes any sense. Like, you can't just, well, someone's like mid run, like, be like, stick your hand in this like container of ice and see, like, it's really just physically hard to do. So I think the best they could do is just do it after the run.
0: Right. Okay. So the limitations of the
1: methodology. Yeah. Yeah. And and actually, they found no difference in the runner's mood after a run. They all felt great, regardless of whether they got naloxone or a placebo injection. So if you block up those opioid receptors, you're still getting a runner's high. And a follow-up study showed that naloxone can potentially block some of the pain-relieving effects of running, but only um, the pain-relieving effects for deep pain, um, not surface pain. And so they had all these kind of different pain assays, like things like sticking your hand in um, in a bottle of ice or like blocking off like blood flow. And so the ice ice pain didn't seem to have an effect if they had naloxone or not, but the, the deep pain, it, it did seem to.
0: Okay, so where, where do we actually stand on endorphins then?
1: Uh, maybe there's something going on, but it's really hard to measure accurately. And we don't know if those endorphins are causing the feeling of floating or euphoria, or maybe they just help with some post-run pain relief. As one review put it, the hypothesis that endorphins are responsible for changes in euphoria and other moods during or after acute exercise remains plausible, but it, it has been perpetuated with little evidence. And let's put this in perspective. According to one review, a single 100 milligram dose of ecstasy causes an eightfold larger increase in feelings of euphoria than a single bout of intense exercise. So, uh...
0: So there's easier ways to get high. Yeah. <laughs> so if it's not endorphins, what, what could it be that causes us high?
1: Refer madness. Uh-oh. The reason that drugs work is that they bind to receptors in our brain that already exist. So, for instance... Cannabinoids like THC or cannabidiol, which we know and love from, from cannabis plants, they bind to cannabinoid receptors already in our bodies. And, and that's how we discovered that we had cannabinoid receptors. We're having some kind of effect from smoking these drugs that contain these chemicals. There's got to be a reason for that. And, uh, and actually, researchers, that's how they discovered the endocannabinoid system within the human body. They, dis- they knew that cannabis caused feelings of euphoria They then thought these cannabinoid receptors must exist. They found them. And then in the 90s, they actually found that we produce our own um, endogenous cannabinoids. And so these are called endocannabinoids. Receptors are just little proteins that sit in the cell membrane, and, and when they're activated by a cannabinoid, they produce a cascade of signals through the cell that have a huge array of biological effects. Everything from hunger stimulation to actually regulating the development of embryos is, is thought to be a, a cannab- an endocannabinoid system effect. People write massive reviews on the topic, and, and we're not going to go through it all here. Uh, for the purposes of today, we're going to focus on the effects that we know about.
0: So we get high. <laughs> oh yeah, we get high on our own supply. Technically, <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> pass them if you got them. <laughs>
0: Four twenty run every day. <laughs> I like to get high on our own supply. Do you want some endocannabinoids? Oh, can like you're just gonna can take go a tab? <laughs> yeah. I go for a run and just like take some of my blood and like give it to somebody else. You better
1: hope it. you're the same blood group, and
0: they would get high. Mm. I wonder if that would work.
1: I I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> I mean, recommend trying it. Well, science
0: for science, Katie.
1: There's easier ways to get high, Nigel.
0: Well, yeah, but this is for science.
1: okay. So our bodies do produce uh, cannabinoids, uh, two that we have done quite a lot of research on. uh, And the most that have received the most attention are anandamide and two arachidonal glycerol, 2-AG. We'll just call it for the rest of this. The word anandamide, uh, this has received probably the most attention – comes from the, the Sanskrit word ananda, which means joy, bliss, or delight. Amanda? An- ananda.
0: <laughs> right,
1: ananda. Uh, the great thing about these molecules is that they're small. They're lipophilic.
0: Lipophilic. Uh,
1: that just means that they, they love being in oil. So it's just like ah. oil and water don't mix. So. Right. Oh,
0: right. Yeah, I know. What yeah. Lipo- yeah, sure, sure, sure.
1: Okay. And so that means they cross the blood-brain barrier. So the idea is if we measure blood levels of these chemicals, it should tell us more about what's going on with their concentration in the brain. So the very first evidence that these compounds might be important for the runner's high came in 2003. Researchers split 24 men into three groups, a running group, a cycling group, or a control group. They had the runners and cyclists slowly warm up over 5 minutes to a heart rate of 70-80% to 80% of their max heart rate. Uh, for someone like me who's in their early 30s, that's about 140-160 to 160 beats per minute. And they had them stay at this pace for about 50 minutes. Then they measured blood concentrations of anandamide and 2-AG and found that both the runners and cyclists had significantly higher concentrations of anandamide following exercise, where the controls had no change in anandamide level. There's a slight trend, but a statistically significant increase in – not a statistically significant increase, sorry, in 2-AG. So you're producing cannabinoids after exercise. Maybe this is why running is making you hungry.
0: Running makes you hungry?
1: (laughs) Don't you ever after a long run? Like, I don't know about you, but I eat, like, everything my eyes see, like, total seafood diet.
0: True. Although after a really long run, I find it has an appetite suppressant effect.
1: Yeah. Um, Which –
0: I think we'll get to that.
1: Yeah, that's definitely, uh, you know, something that I think um, the effects of exercise on on hunger is super interesting to me. But I think yeah. we could do a whole podcast episode on it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So this one result stimulated a, a pretty large amount of research over the following decade. Uh, One study I really liked looked at optimal running dose for stimulating endocannabinoid production. Optimal
0: amount of running to get high.
1: Yeah. uh, Awesome. Yeah. Ten healthy runners, six men, four women, ran on a treadmill for 30 minutes, at one of four intensities. Uh, 45% of max heart rate. That's about walking. Uh, About 72% of max heart rate, 83% of max heart rate, or 92%. And then they had their blood drawn both before and immediately after the run. And the researchers found that 2-AG did not change, just like in the previous um, study, but there was a large amount uh, of increase in anandamide uh, concentration after running in the middle two intensities. So uh, it's a little hard to know uh, which of these two intensities is better um, based on on their data. At the 70%-ish per- intensity that's Uh, about 138 in people in their early 30s, we see the highest absolute levels of anandamide, so they hit about 7 picomoles per milliliter of blood. Um, But at the uh, 70-ish, or at the 80-ish percent intensity, that's about 157 or so, uh, we see a larger relative change between the pre- and post-run. So it's hard to know which one's most important, whether it's the absolute level you hit or whether it's the, uh, the change in level. But uh, (laughs) the idea is that you have to keep your heart rate relatively low to produce maximal levels of anandamide, no more than 80% of your max.
0: But what you are saying, really, fundamentally, is that uh, getting high is not really, it's not about sprinting, but definitely the endurance exercise is the big cause.
1: Yeah. and, And interestingly, the authors point out that this is also consistent with the idea that humans evolved to run within the aerobic zone rather than at high intensities. I should also point out, uh, there's been a lot of mice studies that have been really, um, in the last few years, really looking at this hypothesis in in more mechanistic detail. Uh, there's studies showing that uh, rats that frequently exercise during adolescence have fewer cannabinoid receptors in their brains as adults. Mice that have had their cannabinoid receptors knocked out genetically, so they don't actually make uh, endocannabinoid receptors, they run significantly less than their intact counterparts. And if you inject mice with a drug that blocks endocannabinoid receptors, they also reduce how much running they do.
0: So I wouldn't want to take part in any any sort of study that injects me with a drug to uh, reduce my running. I don't think
1: you don't want your endocannabinoid receptors all blocked up.
0: No, that sounds like it's like, hey, we we're going to take away this this little joy in your life <laughs> for a while. I'll take I'll take the other studies it's for that, science. <laughs> no, I'll do the other studies that uh, try to maximize the high. <laughs> okay.
1: So, uh, Nigel. Yes. Uh, we've got a race coming up, right? We do, yes. A half marathon? Half, yes. And uh, how do you feel about taper week?
0: Right. So we we talked about this just before uh, we, last week, because last week I was tapering down a little bit, taking a break from-
1: You are cycling.
0: Sorry, I was cycling. I guess it's not tapering, right? No. But I was cycling down my mileage, and those weeks and taper week, I am miserable, I think.
1: <laughs> I can speak to this.
0: Yeah, I think I am definitely miserable. I mean, this is anecdotal, of course, but uh, so this. I mean, this brings up some interesting questions of whether or not I'm addicted.
1: And describe, like, when you say miserable, describe this, like, mm. a sad, angry,
0: a little bit sad, a little bit, a little bit angry. I have a, a bit of a temper, I guess you could say. A little bit, a little bit shorter fuse. Mm. Um, it feels a lot. You know, it's funny, right? Because I used to be a smoker. Right, mm. and it feels very much like when you're quitting smoking. Huh, it's very similar in my mind. That's
1: super interesting, actually. <laughs> yeah,
0: because I kind of get this, like, where mm. I, I get really angry really fast. Mm. Um, so yeah.
1: I I looked for papers on tapering and mood, um, and anything. People seem to be happier and less fatigued. Um, there's very few on on running taper, but the other sports I was seeing judo, run, rowing, cycling, swimming, um people tended to enjoy taper week because they're really reducing from a very high level of exercise. But all these studies are about professional athletes.
0: Right. So that seems a little unfair.
1: Yeah. I mean... uh, I mean,
0: these guys are doing really high volume.
1: Yeah. And they're just like, thank God I have some time left. I can actually like, you know...
0: See my girlfriend or whatever. Yeah.
1: Uh, I did find one study uh, published just this spring that looked at mood, and endorphins, and cannabinoids in runners with and without exercise addiction during withdrawal from exercise. And they kind of – it's sort of a weird paper. Um, They were trying to – they just define – they gave everyone sort of this, like, checklist of, like, are you addicted to exercise or not based on, like, you know, their – how – much exercise interfered with their other um, daily activities, how angry they got when they stopped exercising. And they just kind of arbitrarily divided people into either addicted or non-addicted categories.
0: Which sounds kind of dicey to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, we could get into a whole thing about what counts as an addiction. addiction
0: yeah, this is a complicated, <laughs> yeah. complicated topic. Uh,
1: so, you know, let's just, okay, go with their arbitrary divisions. Um, and it was really interesting, during... So they actually made the runners stop running for about four weeks, and during this time, the addicted runners got angry and depressed uh, when they were forced not to exercise, while the control group uh, stayed in a similar mood.
0: Wait, sorry, just uh, one question here. Yeah. I just realized, though, that seems really bizarre to me. You said that they chose the addicted runners based Mm. on this questionnaire. Right. And one of the questions was, is this they got angry when they stopped running? And then they did this test and found they got angry when they stopped running. Well, you know, <laughs> so that's a little bit. This is, seems like
1: it's good though. They're verifying, right? Oh, okay, I guess. Yeah. Uh, they also found uh, that when they ran again at the end of the study, the addicted runners got happier again, which is is good to see. Like it doesn't take multiple runs. Like they can do a run once and they're they're back to normal. The really interesting thing to me was that. The addicted runners had much lower circulating levels of anandamide, that, that cannabinoid we were talking about, that endocannabinoid we were talking about a lot. So their baseline level of cannabinoids were much lower than the control runners. Okay. And then when they ran again and they felt happier, the anandamide level did not increase.
0: Right. So, so which it's is possibly a combination then of both.
1: Endorphins. Absolute,
0: well, no, I was mm. going to say of those things, because we talked about it earlier, the bigger the difference... Right. Might be a key and also the absolute level might be key. Maybe it's both in yeah. some regard.
1: Yeah, it's hard to say and or it may be that an didn't doesn't directly affect mood um in the way that we thought it did. Right. The other interesting thing is that they also ended up with higher levels of blood endorphins following a run. Right. But okay. again, we we don't know what blood endorphins do, but it, it was really interesting to me that we've kind of thrown out a lot of the endorphin hypothesis, yet here we see the increase in mood not associated with endocannabinoids, but with <clears throat> endorphins.
0: Right. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it's probably different. Yeah. I mean, this runner's high is probably different for different people. Some people are responding to endorphins. Some people are responding to cannabinoids. Maybe their bodies are completely different. I mean, <laughs> Who knows? Is, this yeah. This is the thing.
1: Yeah. And, you know, if the fact that we saw these different effects between the control and the exercise addicted yeah. runners suggested that there may be, you know, individual level di- differences that we're not picking up in some of these. Yeah. Not all studies. runners
0: report that they mm-hmm. get high, right? So.
1: Yeah. No, for sure. <laughs>
0: um, but yeah, so the endocannabinoids, of course, are related to Cannabis, so what you're saying anyway is
1: we should just smoke up. <laughs> um,
0: no, 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 that's not what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Marijuana and running. This seems to be a pretty unlikely combination. I don't think personally I would want to smoke weed and then go for a run. But who knows? I have met one runner who swore by it. He said it made the runs more enjoyable. It's an interesting question, though. Does anyone really do this?
1: Well, then we run into the problem we have with this entire section. It's not like the beer and running episode where, you know, pot is this legal substance that people can just do unfettered research on
0: yeah yeah there's not exactly any scientific studies on how many runners use marijuana
1: well there's there's a few of college athletes and how many of them use pot but it doesn't specify runners versus non-runners
0: right and it's not necessarily how it affects their running i don't think no yeah so there are a couple pieces of evidence we can maybe look at though First, there have been a few high-profile athletes that have been disqualified from the Olympics due to marijuana. The most famous is probably Ross Rebagliati, who was a snowboarder that had his medal revoked in the Olympics in 1998. Canadian guy, right? Yep. (laughs) Unlike the poor Canadian snowboarder in 1998 Olympics, they took away his medal because he tested positive for marijuana, which is kind of redundant, number one. Number two, (laughs) they said that marijuana was a performance-enhancing drug. enhances many things colors tastes sensations but you are certainly not fucking empowered (laughs) when you're stoned you're lucky if you can find your own goddamn feet yeah so that was robin williams making a joke about ross robigliati there now back then uh marijuana wasn't actually a banned substance even though they tested for it so he ended up ross there ended up getting his medal back After this, though, the World Anti-Doping Association listed cannabis as a banned substance, considering it to be, as Robin Williams just mentioned there, performance-enhancing and a violation of the spirit of sport. There was an American judoka named Nicholas Del Popolo who had his medal revoked in 2012 for testing positive for marijuana, which he claimed was ingested unknowingly in a baked good. Now, frankly, personally, I think if... If he actually did, like, if he was actually stoned in a judo competition, you know, and I've done some judo, I, I would consider that he re- he should have two medals, not have his medal revoked. Like, that's an extra challenge. That is not in any way performance enhancing. It's ridiculous it's performance enhancing. Anyway.
1: Well, you know, it depends how much anxiety it was relieving before uh, the competition, right? True, true. You might be less likely to, to choke due to performance anxiety.
0: Maybe. I think maybe he used it to help him go to sleep the day before or something who knows but I don't think I really doubt that he used it before going into a competition and this might make some difference because when it was originally banned the testing amount was set very very low so that it might pick up for example secondhand smoke inhalation or use uh very much prior to a competition like several weeks beforehand the world anti-doping association loosened that restriction more recently and limits set now should more or less only pick up very recent heavy use. So it should catch someone, say, smoking just before entering a judo ring.
1: Right. The problem I have with this is that, so they're actually using urine tests uh, is yeah. what their their cutoff is, right? And urine tests are not directly measuring the amount of THC. They're looking at metabolites of THC. So sure. So it really doesn't correspond to you being intoxicated,
0: Right, but I don't think I mean, yeah, I don't think what they're going for here is catching someone who's actually intoxicated like their definition is cannabis is performance enhancing a which is crazy, and that you you know it's against the spirit of the sport, which is ideological, and they are basically saying you know if you're if if it's in your system, then it's one of those two things, basically, so they're not saying like we're trying to avoid intoxicated people, but there's I don't a, think that's what they're saying there's
1: no effect. If it's not, like, acutely intoxicating you, there's no... Oh, yeah, it's dumb. There's no other effect. It's either intoxicating you and having an effect or... Right, but
0: you're forgetting the spirit of the sport. Right? This is the problem. This is why it's obviously an ideological thing. Because these people are basically saying, we can't have athletes smoking marijuana because that's a bad role model. Like, that's kind of the thing that they're saying, which is totally ridiculous.
1: So the problem, right, is, like... Either it's acutely intoxicating you, but the urine metabolites they pick up don't tell you that. And if it's not acutely intoxicating you, there's no there's no biological effect on.
0: Right. What I'm saying is they don't care if you smoke if you smoked three weeks before they would probably ban you too. If they if they could pull if they could get away with that they would because it's ideological. Right. So we're having a little disagreement here. I think in the sound booth on this one. <laughs>
1: Like I don't think we're we're necessarily disagreeing. I think we're just finding this weird in multiple different
0: ways. Yeah, I mean I think you're approaching this from a really scientific sort of basis. And you're like, I don't understand (laughs) it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, but it's not intoxicating. I don't get it. So yeah, yeah, I I mean it's dumb. It's dumb. So personally, I really, really doubt anyone does this in general. in, In in sports in general. I don't think there's anyone out there who really thinks that they would be better off smoking a big reefer before going into their elite competition ring, you know, in a judo ring or something like that. Um, you know, generally, that's what I think. But that being said, uh, there have been a few popular articles about ultra runners possibly smoking marijuana to enhance their performance.
1: Ultra runners are stoners, really? Yeah. yeah par- that sounds so unlikely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. uh so from an article in the Washington Post about an ultra runner, ultra runner from Colorado, Colorado, of course, where they recently legalized, uh, during a typical week, he runs approximately 150 miles and consumes marijuana four or five times. 150 miles is a lot. That's crazy distance. Uh, he doesn't, doesn't smoke. Instead, he eats marijuana lace food. Inhales it as water vapor and rubs a marijuana-infused balm onto his legs. I don't know. Which yeah, sounds <laughs> so dubiously scientific. It's, or unscientific. pseudo I should say. Probably doesn't need to be doing that. But anyways, in 2014, his first year as a full-time professional runner, he won five ultra marathons. His third-place finish at the Fat Dog 120, a well-known 120-mile race in British Columbia, was the top American result.
1: As they say... Winners don't use drugs. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, this guy's smoking a lot and he's winning some races. So, and he says, quote, you're running for 17 to 20 hours straight. And when you stop, sometimes your legs and your brain don't just stop. Sometimes pot is the only way I can fall asleep after racing, but he insists he doesn't consume during competitions. Allegedly, a lot of these races don't test the ultramarathons, marathoners, as it costs too much money. The Twin Cities Marathon, for example, had to spend $3,500 to have the USADA conduct only six tests at its 2014 event.
1: Yeah, I mean, all those lab techs and all the supplies ain't cheap.
0: Yeah, and these ultra marathons often don't have a lot of competitors. So, you know, they have to be charging like $1,000 per competitor just to cover these kind of costs. So it's not it's not viable. So why is it banned? What's going on here? Is it actually performance enhancing? Should the Australian ad be stoned cheetah and not stoned slot? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of problems here. This is a lot less straightforward than our beer and running episode for a lot of reasons. One, uh, pot is not legal federally, even though it's legalized in several states. Um, It's Schedule 1, so that means that researchers can't just actively study it in the way that they can alcohol. Another reason is that there's a couple of hundred known cannabinoids. So different strains of pot may actually have different relative amounts of all of these different cannabinoids. It's not like alcohol where there's just a single chemical. Uh, most of the studies I'm, I'm going to mention from here on out focus on THC—that's tetrahydrocannabinol—because um, it's usually one of the higher concentration uh, cannabinoids uh, within within pot. So, I mean, most of uh, what we know about pot is is really anecdotal. Uh, the neural effects, both positive and negative, are, are things like reduced pain; those are probably to do with the um, CB2 receptors. Reduced anxiety, which are CB1 receptors. Feelings of euphoria, happiness. Uh, my citation here: Bill and Ted. Um, but uh, this is. <laughs> <laughs> this does
0: not sound like a. This does not sound like a, a viable uh, citation. That Katie... it's
1: actually really frustrating because I tried to find studies on this, and every study I could find that sort of talks about this. Just sort of says it without citing it. <laughs> and it's really right. annoying for me because I, I would love to see, you know, and and a lot of it is self-reports. So yeah. um you know the trouble is is that there have been studies showing that judgment can be impaired, particularly in naive users. Um, some studies have shown that reaction time is increased, uh, but it depends on the experimental conditions. There's not really consistent effects,
0: right. but that that reaction time increasing might be a seriously negative effect on performance in a in a sport
1: yeah especially if you're really you know if it's like a sprint where you that gun time yeah, is really important gun time or judo yeah right.
0: um
1: and and you know there's not a lot of studies on um pot and endurance exercise there's a couple of studies from the mid 80s conducted in canada which all i can tell is that there it must have been possible to get pot from um, health canada at the time oh uh, this one in 1986 was conducted in quebec It involved people cycling, um, and they smoked seven milligrams of pot per kilo body weight. And I just – I want to point out here for me that 60 kilos of body weight, uh, six times seven milligrams of pot is 420 milligrams of pot.
0: Half a gram of pot. 420. Oh, 420. Oh, that's a joke. Oh. (laughs) I'm like, why are you talking about – okay. Uh, Yeah, there you go. I know, right? yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, there didn't appear to actually be a control condition, so everyone knew that they either had smoked pot or not. And they found. Yeah,
0: it's often hard to fake it.
1: Yeah. Uh, exercise d- duration was decreased by 6% in the pot smoking condition. So, um, they weren't able to, um, cycle for as long. A similar study, uh, this one actually had a control where they smoked, uh, non, um, Non weed substance, um, and they looked at grip strength. They found a, a decrease in the amount of work capacity. So they just like how long and how strong you could hold on, um, to the, the grip, um, measuring thing. I don't know if there's a word for that. Right. Uh, and that was following smoking one and a half grams of pot, which seemed like a lot, but, uh, this was, I guess m- it
0: depends at the con- or concentration. Yeah. How strong it is.
1: Yeah. So this is kind of an interesting thing. It was 1.3% THC. And the last study I saw on legal pot in Colorado, the average THC percentage was eighteen and a half percent.
0: Right. So basically, these researchers had some crap supply.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was from Health Canada. I mean, what do you expect? Right.
0: Crap supply. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) It was one of those the bunker weed. Anyway.
1: Uh, So anyway, there was uh, what they have also done is looked at general physiology after smoking pot, and this is pretty well established. The cardiovascular effects: heart rate tends to go up. Blood pressure tends to go down. The amount of cardio work output also increases. These are generally not good things for athletic performance. If your heart rate's already up, you have less sort of uh, capacity for for increasing that heart rate through exercise. So this suggests that higher intensity exercises, we would expect to see a, a decrease in athletic performance. But again, very few studies, not not well understood. The cardiac effects last a couple of hours. So if you had like a really long like run, you'd probably be coming down by the end of that. Um, but you might be producing your own endocannabinoids and endorphins by that.
0: By, by that time, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's hard to say. I generally um, – the latest uh, review I saw suggests that that pot smoking is probably not great for exercise. But again, we have very, very few few studies on this. All right. But, you know, there is one, one aspect. Well, I'd say probably two aspects of pot that might actually help with, with exercise. One is that uh, cannabinoids, whether they're endogenous, so endocannabinoids or a plant derived, so THC, um, are actually bronchodilators.
0: And, sorry, bronchodilator, what is, uh?
1: So a bronchodilator is just something that, um, helps your, your bronchi, that's your, the main sort of branches in your lungs, um, dilate. So it helps right. them expand and so people um can who have ongoing problems with their lungs can actually take air in more easily. Uh this there was a study on asthmatics showing that by inhaling pot, by taking a hit of of um cannabis before a, a lung capacity test, they actually had increased ability to take in air. Uh I actually yesterday I I have seasonal allergies and yesterday I forgot to take my Claritin. Um not that this is sponsored by Claritin. I forgot to take my allergy pills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I went for a, a hard run. I, I was running up some uh, – doing some hill training. And I had a really hard time on the first few hills. Like I literally felt like my upper chest was like really being squeezed. And after four or five hills, I I suddenly found I was able to breathe a lot more easily. and And that may have been my endocannabinoids having a bronchodilation effect.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean I had asthma when I was a kid. And I got into exercising and running specifically because it seemed to help.
1: Yeah. Uh, and
0: although back then mm-hmm. the doctors told me not to run, which was anyway.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, that's a whole other exercise yeah. induced asthma is a whole other. It was a set this of weird topics.
0: fine balance. Yeah. I had for to like sure. run not too far, but anyway, but now I can run fine. All my asthma has gone. So,
1: Woo. uh, so I mean, another possibility is it does decrease anxiety. So if you're really freaked out about that long run, um, you know, smoking up a bit beforehand might actually help you kind of get over that initial fear until, until your own endogenous uh, cannabinoids and endorphins get going. And, and one other potential effect is that there have been some mouse studies uh, suggesting that cannabinoids can decrease inflammation. Um, but this is really our lowest level of evidence. We have mice. We have some measurements of, of mark, you know, physiological markers for inflammation. Um, this is kind of the lowest level of evidence we've got. Certainly the pain relieving effects after exercise could be a good thing. But uh, again, we're really running into the lack of ex- of good solid studies, right. uh, double blind, blind studies on this.
0: Okay. So, but is there perhaps any evidence on, say, maybe, you know, a long-term effect of cannabis on, on lung function, which might impact your running capabilities?
1: So this is actually super interesting. There was a 20-year study uh, looking at people who either smoked pot, who smoked tobacco, or didn't smoke at all. And they found that up to about 30 joints smoked a month actually increases lung function relative to the control group. With heavy chronic use, about uh, the equivalent of a joint a day for 50 years, there was a slight trend towards a negative effect on lung function, but no statistical significance. Now, Like uh, with some of the alcohol studies, the positive effects on lung function might just be that people with ongoing lung issues don't tend to start smoking pot. Uh, But at least there's not a strong case to be made for pot causing long-term harmful effects to lung function.
0: Right. So, yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds okay. Um, Yeah. So on that note, you know, there is – you know, in our last podcast on the beer and alcohol one, we talked about the beer mile. Ooh. Ooh. And there is, in fact – it took us a while to find it, actually, because <laughs> it's not that not as popular as the Beer Mile. But there is the 420 Games in Colorado, and they have a 4.2-mile race. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course, this is 4.2 number.
1: What? Not 42 miles? Because, like, that's a marathon. Or not, that, 42 <laughs> kilometers? That'd be a marathon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why not? Why not just do 42? Hmm. Uh, and they have the slogan that they are destigmatizing millions of responsible, positive cannabis users through athletic achievement.
1: Yeah, I do want to point out here that Colorado is actually the state, uh, one of the states that has legalized pot, and they actually have the highest rates of um, athleticism of the entire United States. Really? Oh yeah. man! Wow, that's yeah, really interesting. The lowest BMIs of anywhere in the U.S. and
0: also interesting. Yeah.
1: So uh, you know, I again, this is a huge state level kind of thing. So I, right. I can't yeah, conclude anything. Can't but. really
0: conclude anything, but it is interesting.
1: Mm. <laughs> so Nigel, mm. want to get high?
0: Okay. Is it run time?
1: It's, it's runtime, Definitely. I mean, we've done all this, this work today.
0: Sure. Actually we do have to long run tomorrow, but anyway. Oh my God.
1: Uh, it seems pretty clear that you can get high from running. Mm. Uh, woo! But I mean, again, it depends what you mean by high. Is this relatively mild changes in pain perception or slightly elevated mood after running? Or is this getting outright blitz mid run? It seems to vary between runners. But it's not good to know And kn- runs even. And runs. Uh but it's good to know that at least a mild form seems to be repeatable and we can see it in mice and, and actually there's a study in ferrets that I really loved. Um you know, lots of animals seem to get high when when they run. We don't really know the mechanisms. Endorphins might be involved, they're hard to study. Um endocannabinoids do seem like a pretty likely candidate, but the case is far from set- settled. The endocannabinoid system, endlessly fascinating and something that, that researchers, this is like a really active, active area of research. The best evidence we seem to have suggests that 30 minutes a run at 70 to 80% of your maximum heart rate, so not too fast, kind of a threshold level run, seems to make most runners feel pretty good. So, so we should, can we do that instead of a long run tomorrow? <laughs> no. Damn it.
0: And smoking pot recreationally before running doesn't seem to have the negative effects you might think it does, since it's a bronchodilator.
1: As long as you stay at relatively low intensity running.
0: Yeah, because as as, yeah, it also increases heart rate. It doesn't seem like it would be too helpful to smoke up pre-race. Maybe for a training run, though. Uh, whether or not pot is a performance-enhancing drug is still being sorted out. Uh, but there's no blaring sign that you shouldn't occasionally smoke up before running if it's legal in your jurisdiction, of course. Wouldn't want anyone to do anything illegal. And yeah, just take her easy.
1: Go blaze. <laughs> A trail.
0: A trail. If you want to help support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash For all our show notes and sources for all the science we talked about, visit our website at com and feel free to send us your science of running questions.
1: Or tweet us at SciRunner. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash SciRunner. This has been the SciRunner Podcast.
0: Your source for all things science and running. then
1: I know I kind of like it <sighs>